You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the issues of human rights and humanitarian law. My name is Jamie Bowd, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenby Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today we'll be talking to Uwe Bring, who is the Professor Emeritus in International Law at Stockholm University and the Swedish National Defence College. He was also the formal legal advisor to the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and has written extensively on issues surrounding human rights and humanitarian law. It was one of his recent chapters about how cultural relativism challenges human rights norms that inspired today's discussion. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy this podcast. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights. How have human rights progressed throughout this time, both in terms of international law and perceptions surrounding the importance of individual rights? Well, it took some time for them to develop in a positive way. Uh, The Cold War was going on after 1948, so it uh, lingered until 1966 when two binding conventions were adopted, you know, the one on political rights and the one on economic, social and and cultural rights. Before that, there was a convention adopted against racial discrimination already in 1965. There was a common feeling that apartheid was something terrible against and against the the spirit of, of course, of universal human rights. So it was easier to get that convention in place already in 65 and then the, the two planned conventions which have been planned since 1948 they came about first in 1966 and after that there has been a very positive development in international legal terms at least of, of human rights because so many other conventions have been adopted so many countries have ratified them so they are almost all of them of universal significance but uh, the law is one thing and the practice and implementation of the norms that's another thing and uh, and here of course uh, there, there is a difference between certain countries in the world democracies and other states have different uh, practice with regard to this and in the uh, western democracies in particular you also have the support for human rights in the civil society and which has made the concept of uh, human rights very strong in in many many countries but in in other parts of the world it's not the same thing so it's a little the picture is a little well blurred so as you were saying some cultures don't have the strength of the civil societies behind them and one of the arguments that sort of come out of this is that human rights are a western concept and not a universal one so how does this argument of culturalism impact people's perception of human rights and what are the consequences of people promoting mm. these ideas well first i should have mentioned or even before that within the development of human rights there was a, a regional approach to human rights and in the, in western europe directly after the adoption of the universal declaration many governments thought that we can do more Mm -hmm. than is prescribed for in the Universal Declaration. So in Europe we adopted a European Convention on Human Rights within the framework of the European Council and that has been in place since 1950 and it's now doing a a very good work with many good cases. 
it has influenced the uh, establishment in the Americas mm -hmm. of an inter-American court system of human rights. It has influenced the startup in Africa of an African court on human rights, but that one has not been efficient and working, not really. Mm -hmm. But when we come to the Asian countries, there is no such thing as a regional system for implementation of human rights in place. Mm -hmm. And uh, Asia is also the part of the globe where the uh, opposition to Western, so-called Western human rights have materialized. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 1997, that was not the start of it, but it was a dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. there, there was a meeting in Malaysia, an Asian meeting, among the Asian countries. And the premier of Malaysia, Mr. Mahathir, mm -hmm. made uh, his opposition clear to what he called human rights as a Western conception. And he said that we are now 120 states, uh, which are now members of the United Nations, mm -hmm. but we were not members of the UN in 1948. If we had been there, we, it might not have been adopted. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see, said he, a, a revision and a, of, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that, is, that was, of course, a challenge to the uh, universal spirit and universal content of the, of the UN Declaration. And uh, since, since then, in particular, the, the issue of cultural relativism has been very present in international affairs, where states... Arab states, Asian states, Asian values was it was talked about in Singapore not not long ago and also African states have tried to have their own regional interpretation of human rights. And let me tell you that recently the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, a person who is not very very much now in the, in media coverage mm -hmm. He was asked by the Columbia Broadcasting System in the US, what do you think of human rights? And he said, we in Saudi Arabia, we recognize the conce concept of human rights, mm -hmm. but we would have our own interpretation, not the same one as you here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So here we have a very recent utterance with regard to cultural relativism, mm -hmm. which is disturbing in my view because I think that most of the human rights, as they are defined, can be implemented and applied by all countries, all governments, all over the world. There is, of course, a certain gray zone mm -hmm. where, you, where you can accept regional deviations. Uh, and I can't give any clear examples on that right now. Mm -hmm. But you have to be prepared to recognize that ad hoc, so to say, you have to see that that is a possible solution yeah. and way out mm -hmm. for many countries. Yeah. So what do you think sort of drives these challenges? Why are people coming and saying, you know, this doesn't align with our values? Well, you know, one professor, Joran Melander, who was head mm -hmm. of this Ralph Wallenberg Institute some years ago, mm -hmm. he used to say that it's not the people of, of these countries who think so. Mm -hmm. It's their political leaders and the political elite. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually a matter of power politics in the sense that 
in order to keep themselves to power, mm -hmm. some governments in some countries have seen it as a necessary thing to violate human rights. And then they have to defend that. Yeah. So it's a defense from the political elite's side. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, another view from the ordinary people, from the grassroots of the mm -hmm. different countries. Uh, they would like to have human rights. But I agree with one thing, that in Africa and also in the Arab countries, mm -hmm. there is much talk about group rights. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, that is perfectly okay. But individual rights and group rights can exist parallel to one another. You say these group rights. Can you talk a bit more about what you mean by that? Well, I mean, it, it could be a disturbing fact that group rights are on the extent they are like some uh, in collision with individual rights. Mm -hmm. And there, there might be a tendency to say that we, we are so concerned about the group the well-being of the group, the traditional norms for the group, mm -hmm. the economic welfare of the group, all that is okay. But to say also that it means that we downgrade the position and protection of individuals, that is the, the dangerous part of it. But that dangerous part does not always materialize, I would say. It depends. It's different. Yeah. Sort of context-related. Well, it, it different, differs from countries to countries mm -hmm. and context to context. Yeah. But, uh, but I would say it's, uh, group rights is perfectly okay as a mm -hmm. general conception. Yeah. How can people sort of counter these ideas of incompatibility of human rights um, if the people in power are kind of driving that idea? Well, it's, um, it's difficult for the ordinary citizens mm -hmm. of, of the country in question to argue against the political people in power. So they need support from other quarters of the globe. And uh, that is a very sensitive issue because if we in the West criticize certain countries, like Uganda mm -hmm. has been criti criticized for its legislation with regard to homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And actually the uh, political elite of Uganda have the same idea as as we in the West, mm -hmm. that homosexuals should not be punished because of their inclinations. But at the same time, they have, they have argued that, look here, we will keep this legislation because the West should not tell us mm -hmm. what legislation we should have in this country. It's a matter of our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And we like the principle of non-intervention established through the United Nations Charter. Mm -hmm. And this is intervention in our domestic affairs. So sometime, although we have the same position with regard to human rights, we still have a, a clash mm -hmm. because of this uh, perception that our criticism is an intervention in their domestic affairs. Mm -hmm. So we have to be a little careful with the criticism so that it, not, so it won't become counterproductive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, criticism is important. But it could be phrased uh, in, the, in a more diplomatic language. So my idea is that one should say that human rights is for the first thing. It's not only a Western conception. Mm -hmm. Human rights can be seen to have existed in many Oriental civilizations 
over time mm -hmm. in the process of history. And uh, it's a sort of uh, natural social need for peoples and societies to have rights in order for societies to function in a, in a well-ordered manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we should have less criticism and more discussion in order to like some sort of um, neutralize this, the, the tensions mm -hmm. that are around this question. Definitely. Mm -hmm. You mentioned just then about the Oriental examples previously and in your work as well in previous chapters and you have provided many historical references of human rights practices that are in non-Western regions. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think it's really important to actually draw attention to these? Well, exactly because the, the, the Malaysia, the Mahathir argument was that uh, human rights was a Western idea, mm -hmm. a Western invention and concept. And um, it's true in the, in the sense that the Enlightenment during the uh, end of the 1700s produced a sort of a, a Western human rights idea that resulted in the American Declaration of Independence, that resulted in the French Revolutionary Declaration on Human Rights. And since then, human rights has been an established concept in the Western tradition and culture. So that is, that is true. But long before the Enlightenment, where, what could be called human rights was on and off, ad hoc, in di at different times. They were sort of forgotten in between, but they popped up in one civilization after another. And uh, I think it's important to make uh, everyone aware of that human rights has a sort of a universal history and not only a Western history. So I have given examples for example, of the King Cyrus of Persia, who in the 500s before Christ ordered the first, one could say, universal declaration of human rights because the Persian Empire uh, went from the mountains of India to the delta of the Nile. And that was almost all word that was yeah. known to, to civilized people in those years. So in that sense, it was a universal declaration. And what has happened many times is that uh, princes and kings and sovereigns of different countries have realized if I should control my territory, and if I, especially if they have vast territories, I need human rights in order to have political control. Mm -hmm. So it's a mix of idealism and political realism. And in order for, the, for that to work with control over territories where you have many peoples living there, many minorities, many religions, mm -hmm. you have, you see in your self-interest, the need for the principle of freedom of religion, mm -hmm. the need for a principle of minority protection, the need for a principle of pro protection of property that you have owned, and you should not be afraid of the state and the soldiers. And, and all these things were massed together by King Cyrus, the Great of Persia, when he issued the, what has been called the first Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And my latest paper on this issue was included in, in a book, mm -hmm. Essays in Honor to a Persian, or I should say Iranian, Iranian lawyer, mm -hmm. Jamshid Mumtaz, 
and uh, I wrote my piece on the, the issue of uh, human rights and cultural relativism, mm -hmm. especially because I thought it was a good idea since he was an Iranian. And uh, so I, I included that uh, part of different civilizations. Mm -hmm. You can go on, you can go, go on to India, mm -hmm. where you have kings like Ashoka before Christ, and Akbar in the 1500s and 1600s, and you can go to the Confucius, mm -hmm. and the Confucianism, and the Buddhism, and the Hinduism, who all have um, elements of human rights thought mm -hmm. included. Especially Confu Confucius was very interesting because he said that uh, uh, people should rely on their sovereign to produce welfare for them. Mm -hmm. So he was actually an early promoter of economic, social and cultural rights. Mm -hmm. And when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was negotiated in 1947 and 1948, there was a Chinese philosopher and diplomat with the name of P.C. Chang. And Eleanor Roosevelt, who was in charge of the work for the Universal Declaration, she, she liked to work with Chang because she wanted the declaration to be of universal sort of significance mm -hmm. and be anchored in universal traditions. Yeah. And Chang helped her and he said, Confucius said this and that, and the Universal Declaration included the concept of economic and social rights. Yeah. And that was very much just because there was a Chinese philosopher and diplomat at present oh. in the negotiations phase. Mm -hmm. So there you see a concrete link between 500 BC and the Confucius mm -hmm. and his pupils and the Chinese Confucian tradition in 1948, being included in the in the mm -hmm. Universal Declaration. Nice. You actually answered my next question, was which was, um, did those historical references actually have an impact on the modern ones? And you gave a very nice, clear example. Yeah. Of that. Yes. Are there other examples of perhaps no, historical ones not the, quite so direct? Not not so directly as mm -hmm. uh, because the the traditional what is called the Enlightenment rights that the states shall not interfere in our mm -hmm. private spheres. The yeah. states should not interfere in what religion we have. They should not interfere in what we say, freedom mm -hmm. of speech, what we think, freedom of like, some thinking, mm -hmm. and so on and so on. And, and we should have a fair trial. They should not interfere with the judges when they try to do their best mm -hmm. and have a fair trial. So these are the Enlightenment traditions or that the states should not do something. Then you have the economic and social rights where the states is expected to do something yeah. for people so that welfare is produced. Mm -hmm. And all the examples of the uh, non-doing thing, that, mm -hmm. that sort of negative rights, you find examples of them, minority protection, freedom of religion mm -hmm. in India, in China, and so forth. But they, these examples are not related. They have not influenced anything. Yeah. They just show that these ideas pop up yeah. time after time in history mm -hmm. and in that way are of universal significance. Mm -hmm. But I think with regard to the economic and social rights, there was a direct link. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a book called When Confucius 
came to the United Nations, mm -hmm. which has been written by a Swedish professor, Hans Ingvar Root. It has now been translated into English. Nice. And what, what he meant by that was exactly what I described to you mm -hmm. before. You mentioned the chapter that you wrote on this subject last year. Why was it important to write about it then? And do you think in the last year, with all the different political and things happening, that the discourse has actually changed in the time that you've written it? No, I think that the, the issue of cultural relativism has been with us since at least uh, 1990, mm -hmm. when, the, when there was a Cairo declaration adopted with regard to human rights in Islam. Mm -hmm. And then there was in 1993 the, uh, the Vienna Convention on the, or Declaration on Human Rights. And that had been preceded by regional conferences, yeah. one in Bangkok, for instance, where they had their Asian conception of human rights. And due, since 1990, the issue of cultural relativism has, has been on the agenda, more or less. And then in 1997 came Mahathir in Malaysia, and um, I wrote this article not because it had become worse or mm -hmm. anything like that, but it's still it's the matter is still there cooking. So there has from certain countries' part, there has been a sort of a negative trend yeah. with regard to this cultural relativism issue. Mm -hmm. In in other countries, it's not so strong. There is not a negative trend. So how do you think? that these sort of negative trends can possibly be changed? Mm -hmm. With regard to many other countries, I don't think the situation is worse than it has been before. Mm -hmm. So then, then my idea is that um, Western uh, academic uh, researchers and scholars and Western uh, diplomats mm -hmm. and historians should uh, not be afraid of uh, discussing human rights in a more analytical way. Mm -hmm. As I said in the beginning, not put an emphasis only on criticism, but also on the historical background of the, of the universal significance mm -hmm. of human rights, giving other countries credit yeah. for their being perhaps first, mm -hmm. having di discussed certain things like uh, freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. For example, a, a very early example from the year about 2000 before Christ is the queen, here we have a woman, the queen Hatshepsut mm -hmm. of Egypt, which was um, more interested in peace mm -hmm. than the male pharaohs. But when she got involved in warfare, mm -hmm. she, was, she liked to be humane with regard to the prisoners taken. Mm -hmm. And that, was, uh, that idea of being humane to prisoners was repeated in India in the so-called law of Manu, mm -hmm. which was not a, a, a legal regulation, but a sort of traditional script that was uh, orally uh, tradition went through oral generations, uh, and uh, in that Ma law of Manu, there was the idea of humanity in warfare, mm -hmm. that very late came to Western Europe. Then we are speaking of Hugo Grotius the father of international law in the 1600s, but not until 1864 was the first convention with, with regard to humanity warfare mm -hmm. concluded in Geneva, and then started the development that we have today with the Geneva conventions and so forth. This, so the, here we come into the, 
the topic of international humanitarian law in armed conflict, yeah. which is of interest to the Raoul Wallenberg Institute, in addition to the issue of human rights. These are the two legs mm -hmm. that the Raoul Wallenberg Institute is standing on, human rights and international humanitarian law. And in both these cases, uh, we have examples from the Oriental world that they have actually been earlier on uh, arguing humanitarian norms mm -hmm. than we in the, in the Western world. Yeah, and in regards to that, you mentioned that Western scholars should do a lot of critical analysis. Do you think also that there's a role to play for non-Western scholars and that they can also bring perhaps a different view to the table as well? Yeah, exactly. When I've been lecturing a little about this among Swedish students, we find among the Swedish students many with uh, an origin from other civilizations. And I have said what we need now is that people with a sort of Iranian-Persian background or people with an Asian background or African uh, use their language skills in order to uh, do research, mm -hmm. to get more out, out of this. Because when, when I wrote my book on the, in Swedish on the, the history of uh, human rights, I was dependent on, on literature in English, mm -hmm. in German, and in French. I mean, the, the only language I could reasonably handle. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we need now is research, where you use the, the other languages, and also specialized uh, knowledge about languages which are not actually relevant anymore, but are yeah. dead languages. Mm -hmm. So you need people who know about this. And I think that is, this is a fascinating field with regard to the history of human rights, mm -hmm. which is still unexplored. Hopefully some, there'll be more research into that. Then. Yes, I hope so. To change a little, I want to go back to how the state's role has changed in regards to human rights and um, where you kind of see human rights going in the future. Well, I mean, we were into before the question how states have reacted towards the emergence of human rights. And in, in, in Western democracies, states like to see civil society organizations and they like to work with them. And there is an interaction in many societies. So the state has welcomed a human rights and two be organizations who work with human rights. That, that goes for Sweden, for example, where there is uh, always some uh, examinations where, where the government make use of the scholars yeah. and so forth. But in other countries, we see an opposite development where the civil society is looked upon with suspicion and um, where um, uh, NGOs from abroad are labeled in legislation as international agents mm -hmm. and they have to register according to this legislation as international agents mm -hmm. and that makes it possible to, to stop them, yeah. to, to have them to stop arguing for the protection of human rights and that is the way of handling the foreign influence. Mm -hmm. But then the same countries also go towards the, their own citizens. Mm -hmm. And then they have another strategy, which is very disturbing. 
I know you said earlier that the um, protection of people were using the idea of sovereignty as a defence and I know that sovereignty kind of limits what the international community can do. Is there something that they can do to kind of discourage states from this kind of behaviour where they do repress their own citizens' rights or try and limit the amount of foreign influence that can come in and NGOs that can enter their countries? Well, I, I would like to answer your question, not directly, but mm-hmm. with something I thought of. Um, many years ago, when I was working as a legal advisor at the Swedish Foreign Ministry, I was going to my first conference on human rights. And the foreign minister, who then was Mr. Hans Blix, mm-hmm. he summoned the people going to this conference and he said, now you, should, you will be met by the argument that sovereignty is important we don't take any criticism on human rights. That is an intervention in our domestic affairs. Then you should answer the following. You're quite right that the national legislation and domestic legislation is very important here. It's a matter for your sovereignty to conduct a sort of implementation of human rights. But human rights is also a matter of universal concern. It's also a matter of international concern. And through the United Nations norms and principles, we others have the right to be concerned about human rights in your countries. Mm -hmm. So it is a matter of domestic affairs, yes, but it's also a matter of international concern. Mm -hmm. And you have to listen to our criticism. We want to discuss this with you. So I think sovereignty could be kept, but uh, international concern about human rights implementation has to be accepted at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we will soon have a new, I I don't know whether it will be a new foreign minister in Sweden, but Mm -hmm. formally at least it will be a new government. And for that foreign minister, I would like to say that, give that instruction again Mm -hmm. to your diplomats, that you should try to argue in in this dualistic perspective. Mm -hmm. Internal affairs, yes, but also international concern. Yeah, I'd like to go back again to sort of where you see the future of human rights. Do you think it's going to improve? Do you think the international community can strengthen their position through dialogue such as that? Well, I mean, I I hope that the international community could uh, get on with the policy of dialogue Mm -hmm. and through that, so that we have human rights in a stronger position than it is right now. But uh, we don't know. The, the respect for international law and international norms goes up and down mm-hmm. in the history of, uh, of, uh, of the international community since 1945. It's, it's been up and down mm-hmm. several times. And now we are sort of in a down period yeah. with regard to the respect for both international law and multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Trump is not inter- interested in multilateral mm-hmm. arrangements. He doesn't give a damn for international law. He's not against it always, mm-hmm. but he doesn't care about it. Yeah. And uh, many other countries are uh, completely uninterested in the concept of human rights mm-hmm. for the moment. We see a populist movement in Eastern Europe where the rule of law is not being respected in countries like Poland, mm-hmm. Hungary, Czechia perhaps. And so there is a, a negative trend in the, the international community nowadays, mm-hmm. which we uh, we must do our best to g- 
get over and start anew. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we will succeed with this. I, 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 I'm not that much of an idealist that mm -hmm. I can say that surely we will, everything will go directly in a linear mm -hmm. way upwards and better and better. We all hope so, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's realistic to await that this will happen in a very short time. So it's a more of a we have to work for it. Yes, work for the long term. Yes, work for the long term effect of dialogue. Mm -hmm. mm. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank okay, you. thank you. That was Uwe Bring, Professor Emeritus in International Law at Stockholm University and the Swedish National Defence College. This has been On Human Rights. For more information about the Ra Wallenby Institute's work, head to our website at www.rwi.lu.se. Thanks again for listening.